Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful for your amazing, your sanctifying, your grace that continues to hold us and keep us. We have been the beneficiaries of so much, and yet we are so quick to avert our attention from you. Lord, would you this morning do as we just sang, turn our eyes to you. Lord, help us not just to take a quick glance at Christ, but to look full in his wonderful face. Would you cause the things of this earth to grow strangely dim compared to your glory and your grace? Lord, more than anything, our desire this morning is to be molded into the image of Christ. So we ask that you would help us this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Several weeks ago, I taught in Sunday school on Proverbs 1-7, on the fear of the Lord. By the way, um, uh, just in case you were wondering, uh, Marcus and I didn't get together and plan today. Um, so, but thank you, Marcus, for your Sunday school lesson. It was great. Um, anyway, a few weeks ago, I taught in Sunday school in Proverbs 1-7, in the fear of the Lord. Uh, about that, shortly after that, I was reading through the book of James when the discussion of uh, filling in preaching, when Randy was out, came up and, and, and the discussion of me preaching. So automatically I landed in James. I was in chapter 3, and, and so we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. Uh, so really what was a one-part series now is a two-part series. First, in Sunday school, I looked at the fear of the Lord uh, and the beginning of wisdom. And so where does wisdom begin? It begins with a, a disposition of living in awe and reverence before the person and character of God. Um, that's the fear of the Lord. Um, but where do we go from there? How do we know whether we are truly wise? How do we, how do we determine what wisdom is? And I think that's what James gets at here. Now, obviously, we know that wisdom comes from the Lord. The Bible is wisdom. All that God reveals of himself is wisdom. Um, but when I say the end of wisdom here is my title, I don't mean the termination or the destination. Uh, rather, what is the result of wisdom? And so that's what James deals with in this passage. So if you would, please stand as we read the passage, James 3, 13 through 18. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, this passage is pretty straightforward. It's easy to outline. You can see in this passage uh, three things. And by the way, your outline and your handout I made a mistake. I apologize. The first point is the nature of wisdom, not the nature of peace. 
but then also the second point that James explains or he exposes false wisdom in verses 14 through 16. And then he explains true wisdom in verses 17 through 18. And so that's where we're going. Really, the, the, the thing we're going to look at first is with the nature of wisdom is, is what is wisdom? And how do we evaluate the level of wisdom that we have in our own lives and, and in the lives of others? And that seems like a really important question. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm always amazed at how many people feel the need to declare their wisdom on the internet. Um, I'm just amazed at how many blogs, um, how many, uh, so I had to ask my kids some questions. Uh, but uh, yeah, even the, the idea of an influencer is bizarre to me. Uh, but that's what we have. We live in a world where everyone is proclaiming wisdom. So how do we evaluate those claims and what are we looking for? Well, James deals with that. He says, first off, he asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, we all want to be wise, and we all want to have knowledge, and that's a good thing. I mean, God calls us to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to, we should be growing in wisdom. And so when he asks this question, he's really getting at a problem that he's seeing in the church. Um, I think if you back up to the beginning of chapter 3, you're going to see that he says not many of you should become teachers. Well, why is that? Is teaching a bad thing? No. Teaching the Word of God is a good thing. Preaching the Word of God is a good thing. We should be sharing the Word of God. We should be instructing others and teaching others and giving counsel. All of those are really good things. But we can do it in a wrong way. And that's what James deals with. Someone explained the difference between knowledge and wisdom by saying knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put that in a fruit salad. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's a good way to look at it. Uh, and we all said amen. But I think we can do better than that, and James does better than that. So let, let's get into this this passage a little bit further. So he asked the question, you can just imagine James standing here before us this morning and saying, who is wise and understanding among you? And most of us aren't going to raise our hand to that um, because we, we've had teachers who've trapped us with questions like that. Um, and so we're a little hesitant to raise our hands. But deep down inside, I think all of us at least want to be seen as wise. We want to offer counsel. We want to offer advice. And so we all, inside we're all raising our hand to James. Who is wise and understanding among you? I am. Here I am, James. Uh, but I don't think you want to raise your hand. Uh, James continues, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So right off the bat you realize that what James is talking about is not the same thing that you may be thinking about. Uh, when, when we think of wisdom and we think of people who are wise, we tend to think of people who have knowledge of some area. Uh, they have degrees in some area. Uh, you might even think in, in the church context of someone who has multiple theological degrees. And so you walk into their office and you can go, yeah, this person is a wise person. 
because I see the degrees that they have from theological schools, and I can look at the, the bookshelves, and they're filled with books. This person is a wise person. Um, or we think of success in the business world. You might look at someone who's an entrepreneur, and they're, they're very successful, and think, oh, that person must be wise. Uh, or maybe a little more sadly, someone successful with an acting career person must be wise, or they have a successful TV talk show. Whatever the reason, we tend to equate wisdom with what someone says or how they present themselves, or the knowledge that they claim to have. James says, let this person show his wisdom by his conduct. The nature of true wisdom, the nature of wisdom is that wisdom will be manifested in how we live our lives. And you can look through the book of James and see this, how you respond to trials and how you respond to the word is, as we heard this morning in Sunday school, how you control your tongue. How you live your life demonstrates or shows the validity of your claim to be wise. Jesus makes a similar point in Matthew seven fifteen through 20. He says, Beware of the of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Then he goes on to basically point out that healthy trees bear good fruit, diseased trees bear, d- diseased trees bear bad fruit. He says, You will recognize them by their fruits. And the point that James and Jesus makes is that we live out of the abundance of our hearts. What's inside our heart will be shown. Now, it's interesting, he says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So they look like sheep. They've put on sheep clothing. They claim to be sheep. They even look like sheep. But they're not sheep. How do you know that? Because they act like wolves. So it doesn't matter how they look. It doesn't matter what they say. What do they do? That will expose what's really going on in the heart. And that's precisely why the writer of Proverbs tells us to keep your heart, or another translation says, watch over your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart. Because that's the key to living a life that's honoring and pleasing to God. Sinclair Ferguson offers a helpful definition of wisdom here. He says that wisdom is the ability to bring God's glory to bear on a situation. That's a good way to think about wisdom. The ability for you in this situation, whatever situation you find yourself in, to bring God's glory to bear. Not your glory, God's glory. It's not how much scripture you've memorized, but your ability to live your life for the glory of God. It's not how much Bible you can quote, but is that Bible actually changing the way you live your life? And that's what really matters. Um, By implication here, uh, we can see that there's a false wisdom and a true wisdom, which is is where the outline goes. Interestingly, James never calls false wisdom, actually, he never calls it wisdom. 
He kind of skirts around it. If you look at that passage, it's kind of interesting. But the implication is that some people were claiming to be wise, and they weren't. This is just like what, uh, what um, was in Sunday school. We were talking about faith. In verse 14, chapter 2, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So the idea is someone's claiming to have something, but they don't. James says, can that faith, doesn't say there's no faith or that's not faith. He says, can that faith, the faith that that person claims, can it actually save you? No. So the idea here is that there is a true wisdom and then there's something that claims to be wisdom, but it's not really true wisdom. It's false wisdom. And so let's look at what James says he exposes false wisdom in verses 14 through 16. Uh, we're going to look first at the source of false wisdom in verse 15. We're going to start in the middle and go backwards. Um, he says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I think understanding the source is really going to help us out. Uh, the first word he calls it is earthly. Basically, what he means by this is the world system. So, this is the world's way of approaching life. This is the world, and, and by the world system, it basically means the way of living life that excludes the idea of God. So, Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, the world system lives that way. They function under that assumption. There is no God. There's no creator, and since there's no creator, there's no one we're accountable to. There's no judgment. All that matters is the here and now. There's no afterlife. That is the world system. If you start from that premise, the wisdom that you're going to offer will be false. It's earthly. It's worldly. Now, believers can, can make decisions based this way, and that's why... Uh, Paul says, set your minds, or do not set your minds on earthly things, but set them on heavenly things. Paul writes in Colossians 3, he says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, minds on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. So even we as believers have to be reminded, listen, don't fall into the world system. The world system is trying to suck you in. Don't fall into that world system. But secondly, notice the source that he mentions next. James tells us that false wisdom is unspiritual. This is the flesh. One commentator describes unspiritual this way. <laughs> this is where human feeling and human reason reign supreme. Isn't that interesting? How do you make decisions? I know if, if I continually made decisions based on my feelings and based on my understanding of things, I would be in a bad way. I don't always, when I get home from work, feel like serving and loving my family. I don't always feel like loving my wife. And so my feelings and my understanding of things is a bad compass for navigating life. But that's the way the flesh works. 
The flesh exalts human feeling and human reason. It becomes the final authority. And so all of your decisions rotate around you. Martin Luther once described sin as a turning in on oneself. It's an interesting way of describing sin. But, but I think it's a helpful way to think about it. Because that's what sin does, right? Sin turns us inward. You see, God created us to function and live in community, not only with him, but with other people. He created us to love him with all of our hearts, and then to do what? Love others as ourselves. Two greatest commandments, right? That's what we're created. It's how we were designed. That's how we are most satisfied. But sin comes in and destroys that. Sin comes in and turns you not only away from God, but away from other people. Turns you inward. So we have to resist the flesh. Um, Galatians, we saw in Galatians 5, the flesh and the spirit are at enmity. They're fighting. We not only resist the world's way, but we need to resist our flesh. Proverbs 3, 5, and 7 are helpful here. It says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't lean on your own understanding. Again, it's a bad compass. It will not get you to the destination that you really are seeking. Lastly, James caps off the source of false wisdom with saying that it is demonic. Maybe that seems harsh. I know most of you, probably like me, when I hear demonic, I conjure up images of Satan worshipers offering child sacrifice or something like that. But Satan's a lot more subtle than that. If you would, turn back to Genesis 3. Let's look at when Satan tempts Adam and Eve. I think this is instructive for us. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What is Satan doing? Two strategies. First, he questions the word of God. Did God really say that? Surely you're misunderstanding the Bible. That can't be what the Bible says. Then he questions God's goodness. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's Satan saying? God's not good. He's trying to keep something from you. 
his intentions in giving you that command were not in your best interests. So two things, he questions the word of God and then he questions the goodness of God. So when you hear the word uh, demonic, you're thinking Satan is involved. He's trying to pull us away from the wisdom that comes from God. And that's exactly what he does. You can turn back to James now. He takes the word of God and he questions its authority or whether or not God said it. And then he questions his goodness in giving it to us. You can turn here or you can just listen. Matthew 16 gives us an, an account of an incident that Peter had with Jesus. Uh, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, he began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, Jesus is telling his disciples God's wise plan for salvation I mean, he's giving, he's letting disciples in on God's wisdom here. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I don't know what Peter's thinking here. Um, surely, I, I mean, you know Peter thinks he's helping Jesus out. Jesus, you've misunderstood something. Um, let me help you out. Let me tell you what, what wisdom looks like. What you're saying is can't be right. But Jesus turned to him and said Peter, to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Your wisdom to me is demonic in origin. It's undermining the word of God. It's undermining God's wise plan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I'm sure Peter probably could have written a well-reasoned theological essay explaining why Jesus shouldn't suffer, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Maybe he could have started a Save the Messiah ministry. Um, but we're thankful the Lord pointed out his foolishness and we trust that Peter fully repented. <laughs> but notice something that Jesus says to him. You are a hindrance to me. I tell you what. I, I know I've been a hindrance to the Lord in my life, but I sure don't want to be a hindrance to the Lord. I don't want to stand in his way of wisdom because I think I have a better way. I want to be submissive to the plan and the will of God and trust his wisdom and his goodness. So notice, interestingly, that Jesus identifies two sources behind Peter's counsel. Well, obviously, Satan is behind it. Uh, but, but also, when he says, you're setting your mind on the things of man, that's the world, that's the world system. Peter, you're worldly in your thinking. And it's not hard to imagine that Peter's flesh was involved here. Let me give you some uh, examples uh, as we come to kind of the end of this point. Let me give you some examples of false wisdom. Uh, false but reasonable. 
from a world's perspective, wisdom, uh, that's prevalent today. Um, you might hear things like this. You must learn to love yourself before you can love others. Man's biggest problem is low self-esteem. False wisdom. It may seem reasonable. From the world's perspective, it is reasonable. But from God's perspective, it's not. Here's one more. False wisdom. Positive thinking about oneself is the key to success in life. Those all have the sound of wisdom, for at least from the world's perspective, but they're not the wisdom of God. So let's look next at the fruit. Those are the sources of false wisdom. Let's look at the fruit of false wisdom. Peter continues, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So there's two fruit listed here, bitter, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Uh, you might have in your translation for bitter jealousy, envy. Uh, it's basically the same idea. The word in and of itself is not necessarily bad. I mean, uh, we see in the Bible that God teaches, or the Bible teaches that God is jealous for his people. So there's a sense in which jealousy can be good. God is jealous, and so it has to be good. In fact, Peter even says that uh, in chapter 4. If you look over at verse 5, uh, James said, did I say Peter? I meant James. Do you, do you not suppose... Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So God is jealous, and that's right, and that's good. It's even good to a degree for a husband to be jealous for his wife. It's a good thing. Um, I'd be worried about a husband that's not jealous for his wife. But that's not the jealousy that that James is writing about here. James is writing about a bitter jealousy, and that's why the adjective is included. It's bitter jealousy. It's a selfish desire that's accompanied by resentment or displeasure at another person's attainments, possessions, or positions. This bad jealousy, let me just say that one more time, is a selfish desire accompanied by resentment or displeasure at someone else's attainments, possessions, or position. Jealousy feels threatened when someone else is successful. Jealousy is discouraged when someone else is selected to lead a ministry that you wanted to lead. Jealousy rejoices when someone else falls. It's quick to look for criticism, even if the criticism is justified, so that another person will not look so good. Jealousy. Jealousy finds it difficult to praise another individual because, after all, I could have done a better job. So praise is not coming out of a jealous mouth. If we were to remember Sinclair's uh, Sinclair Ferguson's definition that wisdom is the ability to bring God's glory to bear on the situation. Let's flip that around uh, and, 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 and describe jealousy. If we, if we turn that upside down, it says that uh, the definition of wisdom is this. False wisdom 
is bringing your own glory to bear on a situation in which you find yourself. So true wisdom is bringing God's glory to bear. False wisdom is bringing your glory to bear. And really, you see these two things that you wrestle with, I wrestle with. God's glory versus my glory. Let me give you some biblical examples. Cain was jealous of Abel, and he murdered him. Joseph's brothers were jealous of Joseph. They wanted to murder him, but they ended up selling him into slavery. Saul was jealous of David's success, and he eventually tried to kill him. Matthew 27, 18 tells us that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the Jews delivered Jesus up to be crucified. Jealousy, envy. They're both very, I mean, yeah, jealousy and envy, same thing. Very destructive. Proverbs 27, 4 says this, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand against jealousy? How much damage, how much suffering, how many broken relationships have been brought about by jealousy? It'll destroy churches. It'll divide denominations. can even be at the heart of starting a new ministry. It can be at the heart of theological controversy. It's, so, it's very pervasive. And yet, when is the last time you heard someone say, would you pray for me? I'm really struggling with jealousy. I've never heard that prayer request. I think part of the reason is, is that jealousy is like the log in the speck. It's a lot easier to point out in someone else than it is to see in your own life. Jealousy is, is like pride, and I think they're closely related. Uh, it's, it's, we tend to spot these things in other people much quicker than we do in our own lives. But notice the irony here in this verse uh, that James writes in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, the irony here, do not boast and be false to the truth. Listen, you say you have wisdom and you're boasting about that. You move back to the beginning of James 3 where he talks about teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The, probably what was happening is you had people that were putting themselves forward as teachers, as wise but their lives didn't line up with what they were teaching. So there's an irony here. They're boasting about their wisdom all the while they're filled with jealousy and selfish ambition. I'm getting kind of to the heart here. Um, we, we all struggle with this. If you remember um, Fred's Sunday School lesson, you realize that sanctification is not a light switch, right? Wouldn't that be nice? God saves you, 
flips a switch, and you are justified and sanctified. <laughs> but it's a, it's a process. It takes time, and God deals with you gently and slowly. And aren't we thankful for that? But, uh, yeah, my point is that we're, we all are going to struggle with this because we've all been influenced by the world, and we all carry around with, with it within us the flesh, and so you have to continually examine your own heart, as Proverbs 4 tells us. Um, many of you know that my wife and I spent seven years in Uganda as a missionary, or as missionaries, um, in, until uh, 2018 is sort of when we started to think God might be directing us to come back. We eventually came back in 2019. And through that process, though, God showed me something in my own heart. He showed me that there was really a lot of pride in my heart. And, and specifically, there was pride in the fact that I was a missionary. And so when I came back, I was no longer a missionary. And so God really used that to expose in, me, in my own heart that I had started to equate too much of my identity with being a missionary. And any time we do that, we are in real danger because that's the kind of fertile ground that jealousy really thrives in and selfish ambition. And so God opened my eyes to that and, and I repented. Um, I basically came to the point where I said, God, you're the, you're the potter, I'm the clay. I'm... I'm, I'm yours. Do whatever, do with, do with me what you will, and I'll be content. I just want to be faithful, Lord. And that's really where we all should be. Our highest aim should be to exalt Him, not ourselves. And we, like John the Baptist, should be willing to say, He must increase. I must decrease. Regardless of where God calls us, what He calls us to do, we all need to be in that position. So we get to the second fruit of false wisdom, and that's selfish ambition. Uh, this is actually the only occurrence of the Greek word here in the New Testament. Um, some translations have it as strife. Um, uh, one thing that was helpful to me is Aristotle used this to describe the bitter, bitter partisanship of his day. And that certainly seems to fit with what James is saying. So it's this partisanship. Uh, one author put it this way. Jealousy and envy hunt in a pack. Um, so, whenever you have jealousy and envy in your heart, what is your natural inclination? It's to go and find other people that you can hunt with, that you can be jealous with. And, and so you, you even see this in 1 Corinthians. I mean, that's really what, what Paul dealt with. He's like, some people in the church were saying, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul. Division. Selfish ambition. It, it, it's partisanship at its worst. Uh, it would be like Russ, Rod, Randy, and I um, dividing the congregation up. We're going to get t-shirts and say, I'm of Damon. I am of Rod. I do have some for sale after the service. <laughs> That's ridiculous, right? Christ is the reason we're here. We're not divided into groups. 
We're one body. Christ is the head of the church. So we need to guard against these things. Well, those are the fruit of false wisdom. What are the results? What well, doesn't take a degree in rocket science to figure this one out. Uh, the results or the result of such wisdom is broken relationships. James writes in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. The bottom line is jealousy, selfish ambition, and the false wisdom that that uh, leads to, or that's, that, the, that, that produces that, leads to broken relationships. And that can be in the church, can be in your home, can be at work. It's going to affect every relationship you have. So really, you want to examine someone's claim to wisdom. Just look at their relationships. True wisdom explained. So my last point. We're going to see also that James gives you the source of true wisdom, the fruit of true wisdom, and the result of true wisdom. First of all, the source of true wisdom. Well, James points out that this is from above. It's, it's, this is the wisdom that comes down from God. Uh, in the first chapter of the epistle, James declares that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. So, if you lack wisdom... You acknowledge your need. That's you have to acknowledge that to see that you lack wisdom. The second step is to ask God. So first, we're going to acknowledge that we lack wisdom. Secondly, we're going to turn to the one who gives it, and He gives it without reproach. The key, the key to all this is that if you lack wisdom, acknowledge it and turn to the one who provides it. Uh, God is so gracious and so gentle. He loves to hear the prayer of the humble. In fact, James 4, 6 tells us that he gives more grace. Therefore, he said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And God is gracious, and he gives this without reproach. Um, and so, again, this is, a, this is a process. Your growth in wisdom is going to be like your growth in sanctification. You're going to continue to struggle, but you're going to continue to grow upward, and people will recognize the fruit that you produce as it grows. What is the fruit? Well, he begins in uh, verse 17 in describing the fruit of true wisdom. He says, but true wisdom is first pure. Now, what I think James means by first is first and foremost, wisdom is pure. Why is that? I think really... We need to camp out here, and I'm not going to camp out here very long. Uh, but this is super important to what we're after if we're after true wisdom. Purity is set in stark contrast to jealousy and selfish ambition. It's, it's the opposite of hypocrisy. So James has already mentioned earlier pure religion as opposed to hypocritical religion. Purity means that something is free from imperfections. So pure religion, again, is just religion that's free from hypocrisy. A pure heart is one that is wholly devoted to Christ and his kingdom. A pure heart is one that is 
wholly devoted to Christ and his kingdom. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Don't be led astray. Focus on maintaining a pure heart, a pure walk with the Lord. Don't be led astray by the world, by the flesh, or by the devil. Maintain, watch over your heart with all diligence. Maintain a pureness in your walk with the Lord. Those who are pure in heart are wholly devoted to Christ. And as a result of that, what they want more than anything else is what he wants. When their own kingdom collides with his, and it will, they are quick to repent and turn to him. When Christ points out areas in their heart where pride and self-seeking remain, they repent. Why? Because they understand that, in, that through the process of dying to yourself, you realize true satisfaction. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Then, so it's first of all pure, the second fruit. Then, James says, true wisdom is peaceable. This word can be translated as peace-loving. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice that, that we are called sons of God when we are peacemakers. God is a God who makes peace. He is the one who sought us out when we were his enemies. He sent his son to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven and be restored. He sought peace when we wanted nothing to do with it. So how can we not be peace seekers, peacemakers, peace pursuers? Next, true wisdom is gentle. It is considerate of other people. Again, it goes back. It sees all that God has done for us and, and how he is so gentle and kind and patient in our spiritual walk. And then we respond like that to other people. Even when we need to correct someone, it should be done in gentleness. Paul writes in uh, 2 Timothy 2, 23 and 25, he says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So even we correct. As those who have wisdom, it's done with gentleness. Even when we deal with sin in someone else's life, it's done with gentleness. Galatians 6.1, Paul writes this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Next, true wisdom is also open to reason. This quality is sort of the opposite of being stubborn. It's a, a readiness to yield to other people. Uh, it literally can be translated easily persuaded. 
True wisdom basically does not have its own way or, its own, or claim to its own rights, but it finds it easy to defer to others. I remember being a part of a church many, many years ago, not this one, uh, where the pastor announced um, one Sunday evening that they were going to update the sanctuary, and part of that was going to be getting new carpet. Um, and um, so when, they, when the color was chosen, you can only imagine... <laughs> uh, there was an uproar um, over the color of the carpet. I, I like how one commentator summarizes this fruit. He says, What is meant is not a weak, credulous gullibility, but a willing deference to others when unalterable theological or moral principles are not involved. It doesn't mean that we don't have opinions, it doesn't mean that we don't have preferences. It just means that we're willing to lay those down for the sake of other people. You may have a preference on the color of the carpet. I have a preference on the color of the carpet. But I'm willing to lay that down once a decision is made, unless it's pink. (laughs) I might have to change churches. (laughs) Um, Did I hear it, amen? (laughs) Listen to this description of a gentle person that Alexander Strzok gives, and I think it summarizes the first three fruit together well. It says, The gentle man stands in stark contrast to the pugnacious man. A gentle man exhibits a willingness to yield and patiently patiently makes allowances for the weakness and ignorance of the fallen human condition. One who is gentle refuses to retaliate in kind for wrongs done by others, and does not insist on the letter of the law or on his personal rights. Gentleness. Sanctification is a process, right? James continues by pointing out that true wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. Just like we've been the recipients of unfathomable mercy, we should be merciful to people. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Um, And I'm kind of skipping over these last few pretty quickly because I can see my time is is fleeting. Lastly, true wisdom causes one to guard against partiality and hypocrisy. Makes sense. How can we, if we're pure in our devotion to Christ, how can we divide people? And how can we live hypocritically? The result of true wisdom is that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness sown in peace. What does James mean by harvest of righteousness? I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Let me, the commentators are divided over the grammar. Um, let me just tell you what I think. If you turn to James 1.20, you may not even need to turn there. James writes, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So what is this harvest harvest of righteousness? Well, in this context, in chapter 1, verse 20, he says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. To me, it seems like what he's saying is righteousness there you could easily switch with conduct that is pleasing to God. So the anger of man does not produce conduct that's pleasing to God. Man's sinful anger can never produce that. 
So wisdom will produce conduct in our lives that will be a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. It'll produce conduct that's pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The result of true wisdom is a God-given desire for peace, specifically in the context of the church, the body of believers. That is how you take the spotlight off of yourself and shine it directly at the glory of God, bringing God's glory to bear on your situation. As believers, again, we, are be, we should be growing in wisdom. You're not as wise as you could be, but by God's grace, you're probably wiser than you were a year ago. Would you, with me, guard your heart? Ask God to reveal in you any areas where there might be jealousy growing or selfish ambition. And commit yourself to a sincere, pure devotion to Christ. And then you'll be amazed. People will start to see the fruit growing in your life. Our world is in desperate need of this kind of wisdom. Our families are in desperate need of this kind of wisdom. And our church. And Calvary's doing great, by the way. This, is <laughs> this sermon is not a corrective. It's just more of an encouragement. But the church is in need of this kind of wisdom. And God's glory will be on display. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your patience with us. Lord, would you please be glorified in our lives as you allow wisdom to grow, as you allow the fruit to grow that comes from true wisdom. And Lord, would you continue to uh, create peace in this body. Lord, we thank you for your abundant grace. We thank you that we can have peace through Jesus Christ with you. And Lord, that peace will overflow to other people. And we ask that you would be honored and glorified, and we ask these in Christ's name. Amen.